All right. Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you for getting up so early to come listen to my talk on Saturday morning. I'm impressed with the turnout, even if it is just the allure of the free breakfast that got you up here this morning. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak. I was asked to talk about inpatient dermatology today in one hour, which the topic of the presentation may as well be dermatology because you can see almost anything on inpatient service. And if I tried to cover everything, uh, that'd be impossible and you guys would all be bored as heck. So instead what I decided to do is pick out six very interesting cases that hopefully you all can take something from, whether you are beginning your inpatient dermatology experience or you're an expert at it. Um, and then afterwards, as mentioned, I am a specialist in derm surgery, so I put a few pearls in there that we can talk about that aren't in your handout in a couple of pictures uh, if we have time at the end. All right, so the first uh, case, the chief complaint was that the patient's skin was falling off, which is never a good thing to hear. Um, so our patient was a 43-year-old male who was recently diagnosed with HIV and was started on antiretroviral therapy about three weeks prior to his presentation. Uh, he had been admitted to the hospital with fever, mental status change, and of course a rash. Um, so you can see on his vital signs, uh, his blood pressure is a little bit low, um, his heart rate is elevated with a sinus tachycardia, um, he's slightly febrile, 39 degrees Celsius, uh, respiratory rate was slightly elevated, so he's a little tachypnic, and his O2 sat is low, which you'd expect um, not to see that, especially with his respiratory rate. So you know something is going wrong, this is a very sick patient. Um, so here you can see kind of a cutaneous exam of his torso, um, and the first thing you notice is that he's uh, extremely erythrodermic. Um, you can also notice that he's got uh, really diffuse sheets of epidermal desquamation, which you can see here. Um, on these uh, erythematous uh, shallow erosions. Um, and you can also appreciate kind of down around the umbilicus some very small bulla there, as well as a tattoo. Um, so here you can see a close-up of the patient's chest, um, and you can appreciate more closely uh, the superficial erosions that are here with the erythematous rim around them. Um, these all represent denuded bulla. In fact, you can see a couple here um, where portions of the bulla are still intact. Um, so this is an exam of the patient's extremity on their legs, and you can see the morphology is a little bit different. It's uh, more violaceous to red. Uh, some areas are a little dusky here in the center, and you can see that there are some bulla that have ruptured, leaving some superficial erosions again. Uh, and here an exam of the hands, you can see these similar morph morphological lesions where you have some uh, pinkish red to violaceous plaques. Um, you also have symbol in the center, and then if you look at the patient's fingers, um, you can see there's a little bit of hemorrhagic crusting and necrosis there, and you're starting to see um, just some proximal onycholysis of the, at the nail beds there. Um, so this is another view of the patient's arm, and you can see again the diffuse erythroderma, you have some epidermal desquamation in sheets, and here you see um, a nice classic uh, flaccid bulla there. On the examination of the patient's feet is very similar to the hands, where you have some uh, proximal onycholysis of the nail, uh, also those violaceous uh, patches and some plaques with some bulla there. And similar on the bottom of the feet as well. Um, and so this, this slide is really kind of the key to the diagnosis. Um, so first off, you can see that almost his entire face is affected by this epidermal desquamation. Uh, it's erythematous. And if you look at the lips, you also have epidermal desquamation, shallow erosions, and you have some hemorrhagic crusting and some necrosis there, and it's also involving the tongue and the inside of the oral cavity. 
Um, we also have involvement of the same here on the nose. And if you look up here at the patient's left eye, you can see that it actually has a little bit of a purulent conjunctivitis there. So that's one, two, three different mucous membranes that are involved in this patient in one picture. Um, so looking at his labs, um, his bicarb is low, hemoglobin is low, white blood cells are low, CD4 count is low, and his glucose is high. None of those are a good sign for him. Um, so if you can think about a differential diagnosis, um, toxic abdominolysis would be at the top of the list, and we'll talk about that some more, because that's what this patient has. Um, you can also think about staph scalded skin syndrome. Uh, this does tend to present more frequently in pediatric patients. However, adults, especially those that are immune compromised, can have staph scalded skin. Um, the difference is that it uh, heals more rapidly. The patients usually aren't as sick as he is, um, and you're not going to expect to see the mucosal disease that we see with our patient. Uh, linear IgA dermatosis, while mostly a cutaneous disease, can have a rare mucosal variant, um, but you tend not to have those sheets of epidermal slough that we see here. Uh, it tends to be caused by vancomycin, and you'll have a positive DIF uh, in all cases. Uh, Perineoplastic pemphigus certainly could present like this patient, especially with the oral findings. Um, tends not to involve the mucous membranes of the eyes or the nose, however. Uh, and usually you have a history of um, and neoplasm, but you may not at the time. That could be the first presenting sign. These also have a positive DIF, and the patients tend not to be as sick as well. They tend to be afebrile. Um, acute GVHD uh, can be a very polymorphous disease, could present like this. Uh, rare to have mucosal findings with that, but you could. Um, it tends to spread uh, from acral areas more proximally, and you also almost always <laughs> have a history of uh, some type of transplant, which he did not, so that really was not on our list. Um, and then lastly, you have drug-induced pemphigoid and pemphigus, um, which pemphigoid is very rare for that to affect uh, mucous membranes. Um, pemphigus can, but it tends to be more of a pemphigus foliaceous-like picture where you have just some superficial desquamation, mostly on the trunk. Um, so our patient, as I mentioned, does have TEN. Um, so what do you typically see in TEN? Well, you see what we saw in this patient. Generalized dusky erythematous patches on the trunk, and you can have massive, massive necrosis of up to the entire skin surface. Um, develops within, you know, couple of days to a couple of weeks. And bullet tend to be more prominent on the extremities, as we saw in this patient. And you can see large separations of the epidermis from the dermis. Um, and then purulent conjunctivitis, mucositis, and mouth and genital uh, mucous membranes can be involved. Uh, and in fact, that's part of the definition of the disease. You have to have at least two mucous membranes involved. <clears throat> and these, uh, the mucous membrane involvement can precede the skin lesion. So if you see that in a patient that you're suspecting could be at risk for TEN, um, you want to keep a close eye on them and get them to a burn unit. Uh, the skin is very painful to touch, and interestingly, the hairy areas of the scalp are spared. Um, so they are very sick with fever and systemic toxicity. You can have lymphopenia and anemia are common, which are starting to set in in our patients. Um, neutropenia, when that happens, is a very poor prognostic factor. Um, and you can commonly have involvement of internal mucous surfaces, such as the GI and respiratory tract, which we saw some signs of that in our patient as he's tachypnic and his O2 sats are dropping. Um, and they may have a normal chest x-ray despite these symptoms. So who gets TEN? Well, about 80% of the time, cases of TEN are related to a, a drug. Um, you can also have rare post-vaccination TEN, uh, and you can also have it after chemical and, and fumigant exposure, and rarely after a mycoplasma pneumonia infection. Uh, women tend to be at higher risk of developing this than men, um, and other risk factors would include increasing age. Um, patients who have HIV and AIDS may be up to 1,000 times more prone to developing this, uh, aside from the fact that they could be on uh, antiretroviral therapy, which many of those drugs also can cause TEN, so you really have to be careful with these patients. Um, those who are taking anticonvulsants but are slow acetylators of them uh, also are at high risk for developing TEN. 
And then patients who have brain tumors uh, that have undergone x-ray therapy or, and who are on anti-epileptics, uh, you have to be careful. Um, so there's also genetic risk factors that are present in certain uh, ethnic groups, particularly Han Chinese patients. So those that have uh, haplotype HLA-B1502 uh, can develop TEN when exposed to carbamazepine quite frequently. And those with the B5801 mutation, or I'm sorry, haplotype can develop allopurinol-induced TEN. So it's actually getting to the point now where if you have a Han Chinese patient and you're considering starting one of these drugs, um, I think shortly that will be the standard of care to test for these, and many centers do, especially bigger ones. Um, and so those that have the HLA-B5701 uh, haplotype can be more prone to developing TEN from a back of ear. And that's one of the kind of classic culprit drugs in the heart regimen um, of causing TEN. And it's, uh, if the patient happens to survive the first time of giving them a back of ear, you never want to rechallenge them because um, they will die. And so the mnemonic is never go back to a back of ear if that ever comes up on a test. Um, and so also if you have a first degree relative that's had Stevens-Johnson's or TEN, you are at risk of getting it from that same drug. So um, you want to avoid those drugs in first degree family members. Um, so how do you work up these patients? Well, it's primarily a clinical diagnosis and you don't really have a lot of time. So there's not a lot of other things that you can do. Um, you can take two biopsies, which I, you know, most people would do. It doesn't add a whole lot. You can send one for frozen section and I'll just show you that it's you know, an ulceration, and you can send one for H&E as well. But um, the most important thing is going to be to discontinue whatever drug you think is the culprit drug, and you want to transfer them to a burn unit as fast as you can, because their survival is going to be proportionate to the amount of time that you get them to that burn unit. Um, pain relief is important, and you want to uh, frequently culture the urine uh, and blood and all their lines to make sure they're not getting infections. And interestingly, you could think about putting them on empiric antibiotics, but um, in kind of population studies that actually is thought to breed resistance because these, have, uh, these patients have increased mortality when put on empiric antibiotics. Uh, you may need to debride necrotic epidermis where necessary. And then wound care is going to be extremely important, um, even with something as simple as Vaseline gauze, uh, but you can use other more expensive artificial membranes and other type of uh, materials. So as all the mucous membranes are affected, you want to uh, pay close attention to eye care, mouth care, nostrils, and the anogenital region um, with a variety of different things that are in your handout. And you may want to consult specialists in those areas to help you as well. Um, so if there is one thing that you could do for a patient with TEN that I think would be helpful, that's IVIG, which initially was controversial, but if, I think now that the data is starting to turn and show that it is actually helpful. Um, so what IVIG is, for those of you who aren't familiar, is basically it's a whole bunch of broad-spectrum immune globulin that you kind of flood the patient with. Um, and why it's thought to help is that it interferes with the FAST-FAST ligand interaction, um, secondary to anti-FAST IgG that's in the IVIG that you're giving the patient. So the FAST-FAST ligand system, um, for those of you that aren't familiar, is uh, thought to drive apopt apoptosis of cells in many different disease processes, including TEN. So the thought is, is that if you can stop the FAST ligand with the IVIG before it gets to the FAST receptor in the cells, you may be able to prevent apoptosis and help the patient. Um, so how you start it, uh, you dose it at one gram per kilogram per day, and it's given over three days. You want to make sure that you start the infusion very slowly, and you can gradually work up to about five mLs per kg per hour. So it takes about three to five hours a day that you're infusing them with this. Um, and it's very important that it's contraindicated in patients with a known Ig anaphylaxis or those with the severe selective IgA deficiency. Um, the reason being is that patients that uh, do not have native IgA, your body sees it as being a foreign antigen, and for some reason um, 
it institutes like a really wicked anaphylactic reaction to it and the patients will die. So um, you really want to check for that always before starting IVIG. And you also want to monitor the, uh, for renal insufficiency, hemolysis, uh, thrombotic events, and aseptic meningitis syndrome, all of which are side effects of IVIG. Um, so that's initially why it's a little controversial, but I think in these patients it actually will help. Um, systemic corticosteroids, I think, actually are probably not helpful. In fact, could uh, worsen the patient's prognosis. Um, High-dose pulse corticosteroids have been used. Um, however, in patients that have had corticosteroids greater than 48 hours prior to admission, their mortality actually increases. Um, they have increased infections, increased length of stay, and uh, increased risk of death. So I think um, steroids is probably something I would not do personally. Additionally, people have tried cyclosporin, plasmapheresis, cyclophosphamide, patoxyphylin, other um, immune modulating medications, which um, really haven't had a whole lot of success. And the mortality of these patients is based on the SCORE10 system, which many of you have probably heard about. Um, we want to measure it within 24 hours of their admission, and then again on day three. Um, so the SCORE10 system, uh, really you get a point for each of these, age over 40, heart rate over 120, both of which our patient had. Uh, he didn't have cancer, but he did have a large body surface area involvement. Um, we didn't check urea, but bicarb was low and glucose level was high. So he's at about five points that you look at that, the mortality rate's about 90%, and it increases exponentially as you get more and more of these points. Um, so unfortunately, our patient did end up expiring. Uh, so the second case uh, was called from a nurse in the NICU at 1230 in the morning, which dermatologists don't usually get called at 1230 in the morning, um, but when it does, it's usually something interesting. So she called and said, I think this baby has to ask all the skin syndrome or that other thing that looks like it. Um, so hopefully after this, you'll know how to differentiate the two. Um, so going to see the patient, she was a one-day-old female infant that was born by uh, spontaneous vaginal delivery, full term. Mother was healthy, um, had no infections prenatally that were screened for. Um, and she was scaly and red at the time of birth, but with normal APGAR scores, no apnea or bradycardia, and she was started on ampicillin and gentamicin prior to evaluation because they were concerned that she had um, Staphylococcus syndrome. Uh, so her Staphylococcus skin, sorry. Um, so her older sister had a history of a skin lesion on the back, but there's no history of ichthyosis, EB, eczema, or any other skin diseases in her family. Um, she was healthy, good weight, was making good urine. Um, and when we went to see her, generally she was doing well, she was sleeping, was not in any distress, and all these vital signs are within normal limits for a pediatric patient. So you can see the picture of our adorable little girl, uh, one day old, and you can first notice that she's erythrodermic, uh, pretty much from head to toe. And if you look at her, you can see that she looks a little bit waxy. Um, appreciating here, like someone just kind of dipped her into a candle wax, and she has a little bit of some scaling here in her face, and lots of lines. So this is a more close-up look to her face. You can see some uh, circumferential perioral fissuring here. Um, she did have some ectropia, which you can't appreciate here because her eyes are closed, and she's got um, kind of some subtle scale up here on the top of her forehead and around her nose, uh, almost seborrheic-like here. Um, and so this picture also is very classic. So you can see her torso here, and this very thick waxy membrane, and you can notice these horizontal cracks that are formed in this waxy membrane. That's because as she's breathing, um, she's kind of breaking through this thick membrane that she has. Um, here you can see her back, which is a little ethrodermic with some scale that's sloughing. Um, here you can see some more scale sloughing. It's important to note also that her fingernails are normal. She doesn't have any granulation tissue. She doesn't have any onycholysis um, there, which could be signs of other conditions you might want to think about. Um, so her labs were essentially normal. Blood cultures were negative, and the nasal culture also was negative. Um, so our differential at this point, um, number one on the list should be collodion baby, which we'll talk about. 
Um, so ask all the skin syndrome was the other one. However, these patients tend to be very sick, um, and that's one of the things we would at first ask about when they get called at 12.30 in the morning is how the baby's doing. Um, although not always, they could, the skin findings can happen before. Um, and you tend to see superficial blistering and slough of the skin, whereas this patient has a very thickened, waxy-like membrane. So really the morphology is much different if you look at it, but at first glance, um, easy to confuse. Uh, Epidermolysis bullosa also presents mostly with bulla, um, and, th and that can present with nail findings depending on the subtype. You have some granulation tissue and onycholysis. You also can have uh, findings around the mouth of granulation tissue and other things. So again, it's not really a thick, waxy membrane. It's more of bulla uh, and erosions. And then lastly, harlequinic theosis is considered possibly a subtype of colloidium baby. If you've ever seen a picture of those, they're very distinct. Um, they have extreme uh, ectropion and eclabium. Um, they're, they're really kind of all red all over, and they usually die no matter what you do within a few days, usually. Um, so thankfully, she does not have that. So you may be walking in and saying, shoot, I know it's a thing from the lecture, but I don't know what it is, I don't know what to do, and I don't even know how to spell it, which was the problem that I had at the time to write it in the chart. Um, but after this, you will, hopefully. So you have to be prepared because when you walk in, you know there's going to be parents there and they're going to have a million questions for you if the team doesn't already. Um, and they might not be limited to these, but these are probably the most important. So number one is what's the likely cause of her condition? Um, what's her prognosis going to be? And then how should you treat her? Which is what we'll talk about next. Um, so there's many different disease entities that start as a collodion baby. Um, and they all tend to have defects in lipid processing enzymes or transporters. Um, one of the most common that's been uh, elucidated as the transcontaminase 1 gene deficiency, which is on chromosome 14q12, which you'll never remember after this uh, unless you have to take a derm board. Um, and that's the cause of lamellar ichthyosis. Um, but basically, all these problems lead to disrupted formation of the protein and lipid envelope during epidermal cornification, um, which is why you get this really thick membrane. Uh, so common causes of this can be congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma, lamellar ichthyosis, or the self-healing clodian baby, which is born as a clodian baby, is probably a very uh, low-grade mutation of some lipid processing enzyme that doesn't tend to show up in childhood and adulthood, and they go on to live normal lives, maybe with some benign, uh, really limited dry skin or ichthyosis. Um, other rare causes can be Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, triothycal dystrophy, and infantile Gaucher's disease, and then very rare you can see things like Hay Wells, exodermal dysplasias, neutrolipid storage disease, Conradi, Hunterman, Happel. Um, but mostly you're looking at these three things. Um, so her prognosis, or the prognosis of any of these babies, uh, they do have increased perinatal morbidity, morbidity and mortality, especially when they're premature. Um, but for the most part, if they're born in uh, academic centers that has a good NICU and they're being managed while they all you know, do fairly well. Um, the membrane usually peels off in sheets in about two weeks. You can tell the parents that they're not always going to look like they were dipped in wax. Um, and then afterwards, usually in months, sometimes years, they'll transition to their underlying phenotype of what type of ichthyosis they have. Um, so the most important thing is to manage them kind of through that period where they have that membrane. Uh, and the biggest problem they have is increased transcutaneous water loss. Um, so you really have to keep an eye on their hemodynamics uh, and their electrolytes and make sure that their potassium and sodium in particular are stable, and if not, correct them. And then thermal instability can be a problem because their barrier function is broken down. Um, skin infections and sepsis is also common. Uh, another can be a common cause of death, so you want to make sure that you're culturing and uh, keeping a close eye on them for this. And then pneumonia um, often can happen because their breathing is restricted by that thick membrane, and you can see she's starting to kind of crack through it as she's trying to breathe. Um, so you want to make sure you put these patients in a humid, uh, humidified incubator and you want to use wet compresses and emollients like Aquaphor frequently, like three or four times a day, if not more than that, as much as the nurse can. 
and you want to monitor electrolytes and fluid balance on them, and then monitor vitals for signs of infection, as we mentioned. So you may want to think about biopsy, and the, the family may want you to do a biopsy, but it's really not of any benefit here. It's a clinical diagnosis, and um, all of the you know, possible diseases that she could develop are not going to be really elucidated by biopsy. You're just going to see this ex excessive thickened orthokeratotic stratocornium in all of them, um, except for hyaluronic theosis, which does have some differences, but that's really such a clinical diagnosis anyway that you really don't need to biopsy these patients, uh, so we didn't biopsy her. Um, so far, our patient, her AMP and JENT were stopped at day two, and culture results were stable, or I'm sorry, were negative, and uh, she had stable vitals. Aquaphor was applied multiple times a day. We gave her some lubricating eye drops, and we monitored her uh, electrolytes and gave her lots of fluids. And her scale began sloughing at day three to six. Um, she developed a slight hypernatremia and hyperkalemia, which is corrected with IV fluids, and she was discharged home on day six, doing very well. Um, so at seven weeks, she did have some fine scales loaded on the back and upper extremities and thighs, uh, but her slight ectropion that she had had resolved. And she did actually develop a furuncle on, fur on her scalp that was uh, MRSA, and that was treated with clindamycin, and that resolved. So as far as I know, she's doing great today still. All right, so case number three is a, was that of a vesiculobulus eruption, which is why we were called. Um, so this patient was a 39-year-old male with morbid obesity and CHF who was admitted with a CHF exacerbation, and surprise, he was given Lasix and Xeroxalin, um, both of which are diuretics. And then he developed a painful rash in his buttocks, thought to be shingles, so he started on acyclovir. And then he developed fevers and lung opacities, thought to be pneumonia, so he started on vancomycin and zosin. So within you know, a day, he's already got six new drugs. And uh, approximately 24 hours after starting the vancomycin, he developed this diffuse bolus eruption. Um, his skin was very painful to the touch, very pruritic and tender, um, and he had a moderate amount of bleeding from his lips, but he had no history of uh, any skin conditions or anything similar to this in the past. I uh, did have obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, and diastolic heart failure, but no family history of skin disease. Um, he was taking some drugs at baseline, none of which were thought to have any problems with, or anything to do with his skin condition, and he had no known drug allergies. Uh, he doesn't smoke, but does use alcohol and marijuana occasionally. He's unemployed and single and is looking for a date with you on Saturday night. Um, his vital signs, uh, blood pressure slightly elevated, as was his pulse, but he was afebrile. Um, he did have a BiPAP mask in place, but was obese and was uh, responsive, but very distressed by his pain. So you can see a picture of his dorsal right hand, uh, and he has these small, tense, erythematous to yellowish bulla. Um, and you can see one right here that's in a little bit of linear distribution, which um, is the key to the diagnosis of the morphology of that lesion and some others, which we'll talk about. So here you can see a close-up. Um, he has this tense bulla, and in the center in two areas, actually three areas, he's got a little central del or depression with a little crust, um, as you can see there. And so here you can see more of those yellowish tense bulla with some areas of uh, erythema along the base. Here you can see sheets of them on his abdomen involving the area around the umbilicus, again, with some erythema. And you can see there he's kind of forming a little central delar crust again here. Um, so this picture also is very classic. So you can see, again, those kind of donut-like shaped um, bullous plaques with the central delar depression. They're all kind of grouped together. Some people might call this like a string of pearls configuration. Um, and here you can see on the patient's back, lots of the bullet have ruptured, leaving behind these denuded uh, shallow uh, erosions. So I didn't show a picture of his face, but he also had uh, erosions of bleeding on the lips, um, bleeding on the soft palate, but no involvement of the palms or soles. Labs showed he's slightly anemic, creatinine was high, 
Liver functions were elevated. TSH was extremely high, uh, but his blood culture was negative. So you can think of a variety of things in the differential, um, linear IgA dermatosis being the first. Um, bull's pemphigoid also can present like this. Looks very similar, except for those morphology of those bulla that we talked about. Um, pemphigus vulgaris uh, certainly can occur, um, as well as pemphigus foliaceus, but those tend to be more flaccid bulla. Uh, people with pemphigus vulgaris tend to have mucosal involvement, tends to be very severe, and they have more of an epidermal desquination at these tense bulla. And the dermatitis herpetiformis uh, also could present like this, but it tends to be limited uh, more to the type of fetal position areas we think about, so the scalp, elbows, knees, legs, back, buttocks. Um, so this is a picture of a skin biopsy, which I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with these. Um, so this, this actually is a stratum corneum here, and we have epidermis going down to dermis. You can see the granular layer is a little bit darker purple. Um, and then here, he actually has a bulla form, or a blister split between the epidermis and the dermis. And you can see in here, there's some little Mickey Mouse looking cells. Those are the uh, PMNs or neutrophils. And you can see some little eosinophilic-like cells in here. Those are eosinophils, and the rest of these are um, mostly T cells. So his DIF was positive, three plus at the uh, for IgA along the linear basement membrane zone, also was negative. So the diagnosis was likely uh, linear IgA bullous dermatosis. So this has the same pathogenesis as chronic bullous disease of childhood, so they're often interchanged as terms. Um, and the lamina lucida type, which is IgA towards the 97 kilodalton portion of a bullous pemphigoid antigen 2, which is basically an anchoring fibril in the lamina lucida that holds the basal layer of the epidermis of the dermis, um, is affected. Um, Sublamina densa type, which is actually a portion of the upper part of the dermis that hooks into those little anchoring fibrils that can also um, be affected. So a common cause of this, most common cause is vancomycin, which our patient was given, to, was given that's what we attributed this to. Um, other antibiotics like penicillin and cephalosporins are also implicated, captopril more so than other ACE inhibitors, and then NSAIDs as well. And there's some other drugs, of course, um, the antiepileptics, which are associated with almost everything. Um, and also, furosemide is on that list, which he was given, but was thought not to be the cause because of the time course. Um, so other diseases can be associated with this, like SLE, dermatomyositis, thyrotoxicosis, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and rheumatoid arthritis. So if you have patients with uh, LABD, you might want to think about these other things, either at the time of diagnosis or in the future that they could develop. Um, same with, with certain malignancies, um, as well as infections. Um, so, as I mentioned, the clinical pattern of this is to have this vesicular bullous eruption that appear in a herpetiform arrangement or a linear or grouped arrangement, often called a spring, string of pearls, which we saw in a couple of those slides. Um, and it can also prevent as, uh, as a variant of cicatricial pemphigoid um, involving the mucous membranes, and in fact, the ocular form of LABD is indistinguishable from ocular CP. Um, and then you also want to remember that uh, those lesions where you have that, that donut shape with the central depression and dell, that's really classic for LABD. Um, so you, in pathology, you tend to see uh, a subepidermal vesicular dermatosis, so you see that split between the epidermis and the dermis. You see lots of neutrophils and some eosinophils. And if you're looking at a biopsy of perilesional skin before you see the split, you may just see little neutrophils lining up along the dermal epidermal junction. Um, so here again is that same picture showing that lots of neutrophils. All right, so the DIF is going to show linear IgA deposits within the lamina lucida, which is that area between the epidermis and the dermis. Um, and less commonly, you can see some other things as well. So the number one treatment for this is oral dapsone, um, 100 to 300 milligrams a day, and most patients have a good response to this within 48 to 72 hours and clear. Um, it may also be necessary to add oral prednisone or other steroid-sparing agents that are listed here. 
Um, intensive persists actually for several years, even after stopping the drugs, so they may need to be on long-term dapsone therapy. Um, and in childhood, this almost always remits, but it can take two to four years and can uh, be associated with vancomycin or uh, just develop spontaneously. So our patient was actually not treated with dapsone. The team decided to treat him with prednisone, which was working, but he was lost to follow-up afterwards. Um, so case number four, patient came or was called for rash. And this was probably one of my favorite inpatient cases I've ever seen because usually when you go see a consult, the patient has some other problem and um, you're just being kind of consulted on the side to help with their skin problem. But here, the patient was admitted primarily for something on the skin and nobody in the ICU knew what was going on. And so usually when the dermatologist walks into the ICU, you don't necessarily get all the respect from everybody, especially if you go into Boston. They're still like, hey, look at this over here. We got another dermatologist coming to save the day. Um, but this case we actually did because we made the diagnosis. Um, so our patient was a 47-year-old female with a history of cocaine abuse, and she was transferred from an outside hospital for septic shock. Um, she did have a recent elbow injur injury, and uh, strep pyogenes was cultured from her synovial fluid. She had altered mental status and was not able to give a detailed history, um, but we did know that she had a rash in her right arm as well as some other areas, and uh, this had developed within a couple of days. So on exam, uh, she had a sinus tachycardia. Uh, was actually hypothermic. Um, and was requiring O2, and uh, was very lethargic and mentally responsive to voice and touch. So you can see a picture of the patient, and notably you can see some small purpura and petechiae developing just here on her nose, and you can just tell she's very sick and lethargic. Um, this is a picture of her hands. You can see these deep, violaceous patches that are developing, and she's got this kind of blue-gray discoloration of her nail beds. Same thing you can see here in this picture. Um, involvement of her elbow with these violaceous patches. And this is also very classic to see. You see these kind of reticulated, reniform, petechial patches here on her thighs. So the thighs and um, arms are common spots to see those type of lesions. And um, you can see here it's uh, equally distributed as she has similar findings in her feet as she had in her hands as well as her nose. Um, see here more of the pictures of her foot. Same again here. Um, so looking at her labs, you can see that her platelets are very low. Um, her creatinine and BUN are high, so there's something going on in her kidneys as well. Um, she's got a very high D-dimer, which shows that she's making lots of clots, and you can see that as her coags are elevated. Um, so basically, she's clotting up everything that she has, and she's starting to become hypocoagulable, actually, because she's used all of her factors. And her tox screen is positive for opiates and cocaine. So our differential uh, would include the vamisol-induced vasculopathy with cutaneous necrosis, which um, is what she had. But you also could think about cutaneous-induced vasculitis with DIC, or I'm sorry, cocaine-induced vasculitis with DIC, which could also give a picture similar to this. Um, septic vasculitis, autoimmune vasculitis, that caused by antibodies and other lupus-like syndromes. Um, so, as I mentioned, this patient has levamisol-induced vasculopathy. You might be thinking, what the heck is levamisol, and what is levamisol-induced vasculopathy? Um, so levamisol actually is a very old anti-helminic agent that was developed in the mid-1900s, um, was used to treat animals, I think sometimes still today actually for helminic infections. Um, it was used on people with varying results and it was also used to treat some other hematologic malignancies and I think even tried for malignant melanoma. Uh, it never really worked very well. They've got much better drugs now and it caused some problems so it stopped. Um, however, uh, Colombian and Mexican drug lords have discovered that it is a great cutting agent for cocaine. Um, it's odorless and tasteless, it's cheaper, uh, and it actually amplifies, for some reason, uh, the effect that you get from the cocaine. So uh, actually, I think in the past couple of years, something like 50% or more of the cocaine that's been intercepted by uh, U.S. Border Patrol has been laced with levamisole. 
So it's common in your patients that are using cocaine. Um, so we did take a biopsy, which showed uh, congestion of superficial dermal vessels with purpura and fibrin formation. So basically, her vessels are all clotted off. Um, there's some dermal edema, and PAS stains for fungus were negative. Um, and features of true vasculitis, which is an inflammatory phenomenon around the vessels, um, were not seen. So here you can see a picture of the skin biopsy. Again, we have stratum corneum, epidermis, dermis. And here in the papillary dermis, you see all these vessels have this uh, thick pink fibrin obliterating them. And you can see a little bit of edema um, along the dermal epidermal junction, which is showing uh, early signs of necrosis of the skin. Here you can see a deeper vessel, again, completely occluded with fibrin. Um, so uh, for some reason, the sylvamisol causes this diffuse coagulation process to occur, especially in superficial dermal vessels, and it progresses. So after 24 hours, you see her nose here has gotten worse. It's uh, now purple to the dusky black color. Um, some necrosis is setting in there. Um, feet, again, are a little bit worse. And you can see those, those petechiae are spreading a little bit on her thighs. Um, and then this was with the elbow that was infected. So you can see lots of desquamation, which is probably somewhat related to infection and also to the levamisole. Um, and that was her original elbow injury, which I'm not sure how she got that. Um, you can see here you have some bulla forming as well and large sheets of epidermal separation. So we got a lot of labs. ANA was negative, um, which could point to lupus type of uh, disease. Pianca and Ciancas, as well as cardiolipin antibodies, were negative, um, which can be elevated in autoimmune phenomenon, but is also commonly elevated in levamisole induced vasculopathy. Um, cryoglobins were negative, so we knew it wasn't a cryoglobinemia. Protein C and S were low, and then the urinal vamisol, which takes like three weeks to come back, did come back as positive, so that wasn't helpful to us at the time. Um, it was mostly a clinical diagnosis. So you can see after a week, her disease has really progressed. Her toes are now black and necrotic, and um, as you can see here, and her, the duskiness has kind of spread up her leg. Here you can see her fingers are all affected, including the nail beds. Um, same thing here on the other hand. And then the leg lesions actually are starting to resolve. Um, and it's, you know, acral areas are much more sensitive to vascular compromise. And so it's thought that's why those areas progress on to necrosis. But uh, most areas in the trunk and legs can heal pretty well um, with time. So other problems that, that she developed was acute respiratory and renal failure, felt to be secondary to sepsis, actually not from the immunologic or from the clotting phenomenon. Those resolved. And she also had rhabdo which we weren't sure if that was secondary to the vasculopathy or the sepsis. Um, this did resolve with IV fluids, and I did a literature, literature search and couldn't find any reports of rhabdomyolysis associated with levamisol. Um, she did develop thrombocytopenia, however, and required 12 units of platelets, um, but she did not have spontaneous bleeding. And she did stabilize after prednisone, and the etiology was thought by hemonc to be immunologic. Um, but they weren't exactly sure what was causing it. And I did do some, some searches, which if you want to look them up, they're in your handout. But uh, basically, there are several cases that showed uh, people that had used levamisole that developed um, thrombocyt uh, I'm sorry, thrombocytopenia. Um, here's a patient in 1966 that had it, uh, and Winquist as well. Um, should I go back? So and this one was interesting because they actually showed that the patient developed thrombocytopenia that then recurred with the rechallenge of the drug. So I think that's showing that thrombocytopenia can occur after levamisole use. Let's skip through this one. Um, so in summary, you have these reniform purpura in the setting of cocaine use, uh, predilection for the acral sites, also the legs and trunk. Those areas tend to do better, and they have those very characteristic patches. Um, also, you want to be on the lookout for agranulocytosis in the form of neutropenia and thrombocytopenia.
So workup, you can get a urinal Vamisol, but it's going to take weeks to come back. So it's really a clinical diagnosis. You want to be checking their CBC for these problems, as well as the hypercoag workup and lupus anticoagulant. And C and P ankles are often positive, which can help you confirm the diagnosis. So they may have a non-reversible necrosis of tissue, especially in acral sites, whereas the truncal uh, sites tend to do better. Um, and those areas will res resolve, but the areas that have permanent necrosis won't. Um, and serology is usually return to normal in two to 14 months. So our patient was extubated and improved. She did have multiple debridements of the elbow, and she had amputation of her right foot and all of her fingers, and later had a right below the knee amputation. So you can see this is a result of her left hand and both hands, which brings me to my next point. Don't smoke crack. Um, all right, so case five, this patient had disseminated zoster, which is what we were called for. Um, not much of a no-brainer, but, or much of a no-brainer, but not uh, still an interesting case. So she was 80 years old and had a greater than 20-year history of some type of skin cancer, um, was thought to be mycosis fungoides, and had two to three days of the disseminated rash with erosions and ulcers. So you can see the patient looks very ill, and she has these little uh, erythematous to purplish, punched-out ulcers all over her face, um, really involving her entire body here and her legs. You can see a close-up that these ulcers look like they're punched out like somebody took a little punch tool and made lots of little punches, which is characteristic of her pediform ulcers, um, especially in a disseminated disease. You can see the same thing here. Some of them are becoming more confluent on her trunk. And her skin almost had a kind of a thick, leathery, the doughy texture to it. Um, more of the same. So here's a skin biopsy that we took, which essentially shows an ulcer. Um, you can see that the epidermis is completely missing. And if you look closely up here, you may not be able to see them, but there's these little tiny violaceous cells. And within them, there is this uh, steely gray molded chromatin, which um, are little giant cells that are very characteristic for any type of herpes virus infection. Here you can see them a little bit closer. Here, here, here. Same thing here. So if you see those in skin biopsy, you're dealing with a herpes virus almost always. And this was the special stain that we did in the biopsy um, for the varicella zoster virus antigen, which showed that it was VZV, not HSV. Um, so that was positive, HSV was negative. Um, there's not a whole lot you can do for these patients, especially when they have comorbid conditions and advanced disease. We did start acyclovir, um, was complicated by increased LFTs and sepsis, and she ended up passing away. All right, so case six proves that you can see anything and everything when you're in the inpatient service. Um, this is a patient that came in with painful nodules. So she's a 29-year-old uh, African-American female complaining of painful nodules in the anterior and posterior thighs, lower back, and buttocks for two weeks. Um, one to two weeks prior to the onset of this, she fell down some stairs on her buttocks. And days before the onset of the pain, the patient was stuck in the thigh by some type of cactus. Um, she didn't know what it was. Uh, the pain was 8 out of 10 in intensity and worsened with walking and with palpation. And she did have some subject, uh, subjective fevers, chills, and nausea, though um, did not have an objective fever. So she had two ER visits for this within two weeks. She was given seven days of Bactrim and then Keflex, neither of which helped. Um, and she had no history of similar bumps in the past. And she had been started on vancomycin IV by the medicine team. Um, so she had no history of skin diseases. Um, only thing to speak of in her medical history was a C-section and three vaginal births. Um, she does drink eight, eight, eight alcoholic beverages daily, uh, does not use drug or tobacco, works in an auto factory, um, was single, and had four children. Her daughter had eczema, um, no other family history, and otherwise uh, review systems was negative, and vital signs were uh, fairly normal. So there's not really a whole lot to see on skin exam here. You can see my positive biopsy sign before I took the picture. Um, but she did have these little firm, rubbery, mobile nodules that you could palpate under the skin with some subtle erythema over them. Um, and you can see here there's a little bit of 
um, some slight hyperpigmentation over the areas that were circled, which again were more palpable than they were visible on exam. And here's a larger area on her thigh that was infected with lots of these smaller nodules. Um, so her labs didn't have much to really speak of. She had a slightly uh, low white blood cell count and hemoglobin, but nothing that was crazy. Um, so our additional history was the interesting part. So she was admitted to having injection of silicone in the center of her buttocks three years ago. Um, this was performed by a non-licensed, non-trained woman with a street name only. I think she said her name was like Mustang Sally or something. Uh, and it was in a hotel room, and she never heard of this lady again, and she charged her $1,000 for this. Um, probably not the best idea. Uh, so our differential diagnosis was deep fungal infection, um, an autoimmune paniculitis, like a lupus paniculitis, or silicone or other foreign body granuloma. Um, her C-reactive protein was high, showing that she had some inflammation. Her ANA and Hep B and C and HIV tests were all negative. Um, so bacterial cultures and fungal cultures in the blood were negative. And the PAS and Grocot stains um, that we did on her biopsy were negative, which those are for fungus. And the Alshin blue stain, which stains mucin, which is helpful in lupus and other anti, uh, I'm sorry, autoimmune diseases, was also negative. And then tissue culture was negative. Um, so here you can see a picture of her biopsy, and this is all in the fat. You don't really see any epidermis or dermis in this section. Um, and you can see these are larger normal fat cells here. And then in the central portion, you see lots of these smaller, irregularly shaped, clear spaces. Um, and as you look closer, you can see she's got some giant cells. Um, and again, these small, irregular, clear spaces that are filled with something um, that's not fat. And it was thought that these were silicone. Or they are silicone. So our diagnosis was silicone granuloma. Um, so our questions were, how common is this? Because I had never heard of this before at this point. And then how do you treat this condition? Um, well, medical grade silicone is used for many things, um, for implanted prosthetics, IV tubing, and the gel form is used in breast reconstruction and enlargement. Um, liquid silicone was commonly used as a filler before uh, we developed newer, better fillers now. Um, but it was medical grade again, so it's constant viscosity, um, seemingly sterile, and it was used for soft tissue augmentation, facial wrinkles, and acne scarring. And some practitioners still use it today, although it's not as common. Um, for reasons we'll discuss. So industrial grade silicone is uh, different. Um, it can be used for medical purposes, most commonly outside the United States, um, but can happen in the United States under the black market by unlicensed individuals. Um, and of course, it's not regulated or standardized, which is probably what this patient had injected into her. Um, so uh, commonly reported things with silicone in the past were pain, erythema, ecchymosis, and induration at the, at the injection site. Uh, but most concerning is the migration of the material if it's not injected properly. Um, it can end up all over the body. It really can go anywhere. Um, it can develop granulomatous reactions, acute uh, pneumonitis, and granulomatous hepatitis just from having it injected in the skin. Um, so these uh, granulomatous reactions were continued to be, or considered to be very rare when using medical grade silicone. Um, but there's some reports that suggest it could be more common, up to 20%, uh, but not reported. Um, and at least 14 case reports uh, were in the literature that I found. So trying to figure out what we could do to help this lady, um, looked at the other cases. So there were four reports of using minocycline, three successfully, although one of those cases recurred with time. Uh, but one of the patients had continued improvement up to a year after using minocycline. Um, a tannercept had been tried, and the patient actually improved within four weeks and sustained that improvement over six months. Um, oral prednisone had not been successful, and intralesional prednisone was not successful in one case. Um, topical amiquimod helped in one instance. I'm not sure of the mechanism there, if that was even really the cause. And then excision had been helpful in a couple of cases, but it's difficult to really excise this because it's very diffuse and they can migrate all over the place, so it's hard to pin it down. Um, and so basically what's thought to be happening, or what we think is happening, is that you inject the silicone and um, 
there's a little microfilm of bacteria that can develop and form around these granules and possibly incite this granulomatous reaction, uh, which could be why the antibiotic helps, or it could be that the antibiotic is just helping by causing down or calming down the inflammation that's there. Um, same thing with the tanercept. So for our patient, we started around minocycline. Um, the tenderness and erythema improved at her two-week follow-up visit as an outpatient and had resolved at six weeks. Um, but she was still concerned about having these masses in her body, and so she went to plastic surgery for a consult to see if she could get them removed, and then um, we didn't see her again in dermatology. So hopefully she's doing okay. Um, so at the end, I'll just kind of touch on some pearls here before I let you go. Um, so a couple from my talk and a couple surgical. The first one is that when you see those tense donut-shaped bulla that you want to think about linear IgA because um, those are really classic for that. And then when you see this reniform purpur and an acral distribution, also in the trunk um, setting of cocaine use, you want to think of levamisol vasculopathy. Um, so for those of you that are doing any Mohs repairs or anything like that, um, or who are doing any closures on a lip, um, if you are repairing a mucosal lip, you always want to use something that's soft and braided. That's not going to tear through the, through the mucosal lip as the patient's talking or eating, or if it's under tension. And so silk is kind of commonly the classic one that you would use for this, um, but Vicryl works just as well. And so if you're doing enclosure on the lip and you're using Vicryl to close the cutaneous deeper portion, you can also use that um, for the superficial portion of the lip and save yourself opening another suture and uh, costing money. And then lastly, if you're injecting HA fillers in the nasolabial fold, uh, you may want to consider using a one inch long 30 gauge needle. Um, it's a little bit flimsier and uh, takes a little bit more practice, but you can decrease the amount of needle pokes for the patient. Um, so, lastly, uh, if you're doing um, any kind of surgery in high tension areas, so like the scalp, the lower legs, the back, um, you may not be able to close your primary defect uh, with a linear closure. So one thing you can try is a purse string suture, which kind of uh, works as an old-fashioned purse string to kind of cinch up the wound from all directions. And so this uh, diagram here shows actually a superficial stitch that you'd have to remove. Um, what you could do, I actually prefer to use um, a kind of a running uh, intradermal stitch of Vicryl that you can actually pass underneath the skin, cinch it together, and you can bring in from all sides. And then oftentimes, you may not be able to get it completely closed, but you can then add some deep sutures um, and get the wound to completely close. Um, this is also a favorite of mine to use in areas like the shoulder or upper back where you may be able to get the wound closed with a long linear closure, but those areas that are under such high tension with time that those scars tend to spread, and you may see those when you examine a patient's back, they'll have track marks and these huge wide fish mouth scars. That's because it's probably closed great to start with, but with time it just pulls apart. So rather than elongating the ellipse and making the scar worse, you can make a little purse string and then maybe add some deeper sutures, and so you end up with a small puckered wound that's going to settle down with time and give the patient a nicer scar. And it's very easy to do, and it's very fast to do as well. Um, so this is uh, a keloid on the ear. Depending on where you practice, you may see more of these. Um, and these are uh, often common complaints for patients to excise. And you can see when you have them large, large keloids like this, it's very difficult to manipulate them during surgery. So the whole process um, I won't talk about, but I'll just talk about one little pearl is that when you're operating on these, forceps tend not to work because they're too small. Um, and skin hooks kind of get caught in there and it can't really get as good attraction. Um, but another tool on your tray, which is a towel clamp that often does nothing and just sits there and stares at you, is a great tool to use um, to manipulate the keloids. You can kind of lock them in from either side and you can use it to move around and gain traction while you're excising them. Um, here's another view. And then you can see the final result. Um, and so lastly, um, you may be doing any kind of biopsy or surgery on the lip, and it's always important to, I'm sorry, on the face, and it's always important to keep in mind where your innervations are coming from. Um, so here, this is a little diagram that I borrowed from Bologna, um, showing supraorbital, infraorbital, uh, and mental nerve locations. Um, so the infraorbital nerve is basically kind of feeding the upper lip up to this point. 
um, supraorbital nerve here, and then the mental nerve kind of serves the chin and lower lip. So if you're doing a biopsy on the lower lip or even anything in this area, you can get a great block um, by just injecting here, and that can save you, uh, save you time and the patient some discomfort. Um, and this also works great if you're doing any, any type of fillers in this area um, and you want to anesthetize a patient, you can just do this, the supraorbital nerve and that will really help you out with the nasolabial fold in the lip. Um, and so you can also use an intraoral route to get at that infraorbital orbital nerve. Basically you uh, insert this between the first and second premolars and then you move basically up until you hit a bone and then you inject. Um, and so you can see a picture of that here. Um, so that's it for me. Thank you so much for coming and thank you for inviting me. I had a great time and hopefully I'll be back again soon. Thanks.